Brought to you by the Cabell County Public Library. Between Two Shelves brings you a new look on the day-to-day -day life of a library. From youth services to circulation and beyond, our episodes will lend you the world here at the Cabell County Public Library. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new edition of Between Two Shelves, the official podcast of the Cabell County Public Library. I'm your host, Jacob, and today I am joined by Kenzie Newwalker from the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, West Virginia. Kenzie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. So we will jump right into the first question. Why was the United Mine Workers of America Union not as strong in southern West Virginia prior to 1912? That's a great question. So the... United Mine Workers of America, or the UMWA, which I'll refer to it as, was formed in 1890. Um, so by 1912, it had been around for 22 years and really struggled to gain a foothold in southern West Virginia until the 1930s. So it wasn't, it was a struggle to form a union until that time period. So even though we see a really big rift happen in the mine wars in 1912, um, they were still fighting for union recognition, especially in the southern part of the state, like Mingo, McDowell, and Logan counties. So there's a couple different reasons for this. One is the landscape. Mm. So it's really, it was really hard to get to southern West Virginia. They had to build entire towns, you know, to accommodate the coal companies and to accommodate the extraction that would happen. And eight out of 10 coal miners in West Virginia lived and worked in these company towns. This is by far the largest percentage in America. Hmm. The companies, you know, they owned the land, they owned the mineral rights. They really had nearly complete control over coal miners and their families. Um, we see a really big change within one generation of how people lived and worked in West Virginia. So prior to, to this period, there were a lot of farmers, a lot of people who lived self-sustaining lives. And within a decade, you know, you see this company town system and mine guard system pop up. And a lot of these coal operators and coal companies weren't from West Virginia. They lived in bigger cities like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and so we see this trend of absentee land ownership that starts to occur in southern West Virginia, and it's actually still a really big problem. Yeah, it's something that's really just in West Virginia, even prior to West Virginia being its own state. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I So I wrote down a poem that Carl Sandburg wrote, you know, after inspiration of visiting West Virginia, just to kind of give listeners a sense of what life was like in company towns. And this poem is actually prominently displayed as soon as you walk in the museum's first exhibit, which mm. is Life in the Coal Camps. And it says, you live in a company house, you go to a company school, you work for this company according to company rules. You all drink company water and all use company lights. The company preacher teaches us what the company thinks is right. So we, from this poem and from the literature and just stories that have been passed down, we know and understand that the, the companies dictated what was going to be taught in their schools, what was going to be preached on Sundays, uh, what the prices were going to be at the company store. 
So there's really complete social, economic, political control that, that starts to happen. And so this essentially helps describe the mine guard system, which is what miners were up against during the mine wars, what they were fighting against. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I know I've, I know I've read like journal articles before when we were at Marshall that sort of made the argument that the only other place you see a system that works really similar to this is in the South. Yeah. And with sharecroppers. Yeah. Of it's a different kind of slavery. Just you're getting paid, but are you really getting paid? Because all that money is just going right back to the company. And the money, it wasn't actually money. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not yeah. yeah, it's not American currency, which is another layer to it. Yeah. You know, miners were paid in something that you just described script, mm-hmm. which was only redeemable at the company store. Which yeah, it's they like worked. the Chuck E. Cheese coins. Yeah, the Chuck E. Cheese coins. Yeah, that's how I always the, thought about it. For the companies. And it's it's interesting that you bring up the South because, because you know, when the companies came to town, it was very rural in yeah. West Virginia. still is in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But they needed a workforce, and so they recruited, of course, white mountaineers who were already living in the region, Um, but they also went down south, uh, especially for folks who were living under Jim Crow. They had this, companies had this promise of an American dream, you know, come here, it all sounds really great, we'll put you up in a house, we'll make sure you have a job, bring your families. And it turns out it's not so great. Yeah. You know, and the same is true for immigrants. We see this is a period when immigrants from Europe are, you know, just pouring into Ellis Island daily by the thousands. And so there was actually a position created in West Virginia for coal companies to go up and recruit immigrants with that mm-hmm. same promise, you know. And by the time that they would come into town on the railroads, they were already in debt yeah. because of that ride. And yep. so we see this system of exploitation that starts really from the get-go, from the first time you step on the train. And, you know, I always tell people the song 16 Tons. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Because <laughs> the there's the Johnny Cash version. And Tennessee Ernie Ford. And Tennessee Ernie Ford, yep. yep. I grew up listening to Ford's version. But it's not, like... This is... It's not a joke. It's not a joke. absolutely what it was, yeah. It's real stories. In another episode we had done before when I talked to uh, Joe Geiger about the Civil War in Cabell County, we had also sort of brought up that idea of the landscape of West Virginia and how incredibly difficult it is to get into some of these areas. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to sort of talk about that for a little bit and sort of how, you know, there's not really another state like it of just entire sections of the state are just completely cut off because of mountains and there's no usable railroads in there. And that leads to my next question of uh, the Baldwin Feltz Agency and how they get involved into this uh, and what their importance is. So could you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the Baldwin Feltz Agency was, first of all, a failed business venture. They were contracted by coal companies to serve as mine guards essentially mm-hmm. they they were headquartered in Bluefield Virginia and they're essentially private detectives they were heavily resented by coal miners and their families even you know, before they got to West Virginia yeah even before yeah. they got to West Virginia and I think to really understand um, the mine guard system you got to 
kind of take a step back and think about, okay, what does an incorporated town look like as we know it today, which of course has an elected officials, um, like a mayor, uh, they have police officers, they have this sort of structure. Well, in company towns, you had mine guards who played by their own rules, and they often were terrorizing miners and their families inside of these company towns. Uh, coal operators would refer to the mine guards as, quote, a civilizing force in the mountains, end quote. And they, you know, push this narrative that they're protecting law and order. Mm-hmm. They were not. I also have another quote from West Virginia Attorney General Howard B. Lee, who described them as, quote, fearless mountain gunmen, many with criminal records whose chief duties were to keep the miners intimidated, to beat up, arrest, jail, and even kill if necessary any worker or visitor suspected of union activities around the camps. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of their primary responsibility was to thwart, you know, unionism in in the coal camps, you know. Uh, Something that miners would often have to sign during the period of the mine wars were contracts called yellow dog contracts. Yeah. We have one displayed at the museum, and essentially, you know, it's miners signing on the dotted line, hey, I won't join the union. I will not join the UMWA. I won't speak of it, won't talk about it, won't organize. And this starts to set up some very, really critical infringements of constitutional rights. Yeah. And so not only are we talking about labor justice, we're also talking about basic First and Second Amendment rights to yep. free speech and free assembly. So all in all, the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, you know, they weren't on, they weren't the winners of this story by a long shot. And most of them end up dead. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about that. Oh, we'll talk about that. Yeah, that's pretty much the Baldwin Feltz Detectives. In a nutshell. Well, we'll talk about that right now, actually. <laughs> so the Baldwin Felds are the ones that end up in Mate 1. Yep. Um, in the Logan minefields. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about the shootout at Mate 1? Yeah. So the Battle of Mate 1 was, you know, the next big rift after the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strikes mm-hmm. that happened uh, in the in this story of the mine wars. Baldwin Feltz detective agents had come to town, and this was May 19, 1920. They arrived uh, by, by train cars, and they were there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to evict families out of their coal company-owned houses in Stony Mountain Coal Camp. So they essentially spent the day and all afternoon carrying out these evictions. I think there's some powerful oral histories inside the museum that really illuminate what this would have been like for families yeah i think i I think i read a couple of those when i visited myself one of them talking about how they just picked up their stove and threw it out yeah stuff like that yep they would evict families you know there's a story of a pregnant woman being evicted this didn't happen in mate one but being evicted and then giving birth in a tent colony two hours later. And so they were very ruthless in the way that they did this. Um, You know, and I think that's not only, if you joined the union, not only did you become jobless, you also became houseless. Yeah. So we start start to see tent colonies pop up. So anyway, after this 
this day, Stony Mountain, they were coming back to town. Stony Mountain, you know, coal camp was kind of scattered around Mate One, but about a mile or so away from the town center. And uh, as they were walking back, you know, they're met with chief of police of the town, Sid Hatfield, who has, you know, is, is really the miner's hero in this story. Sid Hatfield is really unique because he was one, one kind of public figure, if you will, who sided with the miners. I mean, the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency had tried to bribe him like they had done a sheriff over in Logan County, Don Chafin, who is the complete opposite of Sid Hatfield. You know, so Sid and the Feltz brothers, Albert and Lee Feltz, met on the railroad tracks and there was this exchange of words. They each had warrants for each other and were trying to arrest each other. And Sid was like, hey, you don't have authority here. I do. You know, you can't carry out these evictions. Well, the conversation turned heated and ultimately uh, both sides pulled out their weapons and shot. This this battle of Mate One became the large one of the largest shootouts in American history and ultimately left ten people dead or dying mm-hmm. on the streets of Mate One. Seven of those were Baldwin Feltz detective agents, including two brothers who were the brothers of the head of the agency, Tom Feltz. Yep. And so seven detectives dead, two minors who were bystanders as well as the mayor of Mate One, Cavill Testerman. No one knows who fired the first shot. There's I was going to ask, <laughs> who do you think fired the first shot? It depends on who you ask. So I remember pouring over some of the Mate One oral histories that are at Morrow Library uh-huh. at Marshall, and you know everyone was very secretive, and they this was these oral histories were collected like in the late '80s and '90s, so decades removed from the event Mm -hmm. and folks were still like I know who did it and I'm not telling you know so we don't know I think I think one thing that's important to point out is that this wasn't a massacre like it is has been portrayed this was a battle you know I, I think the term massacre was something that Tom Feltz tried to push because this was one incident in the mine wars where the miners won. Yeah. You know, they were up one, and so he really pushed it as a massacre. But I would say, you know, the real massacre happened out in Ludlow, Colorado, Mm -hmm. six years prior when Baldwin Feltz detective agents, including some of those who were there in Mate One the day of the battle, murdered and massacred 25 people in tent colonies, including 11 children. Yeah. Both sides pulled out their weapons. Both sides used them. Um, after this, Sid became a really popular figure and sort of notable. I think the UMWA, no, I know the UMWA commissioned for a silent film to be made of Sid Hatfield after this. They called it Smiling Sid. No one knows where that film is at. I'd be curious if there's someone listening. I would too, yeah. If, like, this film is out there. You know, I think that's one of the important things about the museum's work is we are actively reclaiming, recovering, restoring these histories Mm -hmm. because they've sat in basements or attics or 
they've been stories shared around local kitchen tables and on on front porches and so I wonder if that film is out there somewhere. Now I know in the museum there's the video of Sid Hatfield you guys have. I love that video. I do too. <laughs> His smile is just something else. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to bring that video up because is he that is the one clear image I can remember from my time there is seeing that video and seeing him just it, it really is just an eruption of smile. Mm-hmm. He's a very prominent figure, even if you wouldn't know who he was. Like yeah. I think just like seeing the guy, you're like, who is that? You yeah. Know, he's he. Especially with that last name. Yeah. Yeah. Hatfield, of course. So my next question is, what were the reactions to the shootout at Main One? That's a great question. I think local people were pretty scared. Sure. They're shooting guns in the middle of town. I'd be scared, too. Yeah, they're shooting guns in the middle of town. There's actually, um, if you go to the Methodist Church, which is across Mm -hmm. the railroad tracks, it's a really incredible building. It was built by Italian immigrants and has some incredible stonework. They have a sign outside the building that says, you know, right after the Battle of Mate 1, local children were brought into the basement and they played games and sang songs and like entertained the children while they were cleaning up the bloodshed yeah. in the streets because you can imagine 10 people dying you don't want people to see that yeah especially in a small area like that it's yeah. going to be very noticeable very very and you know the trains after that I think they none of the trains stopped they just kept moving yeah. through town because no one knew what to expect in terms of the, the Baldwin Feltz agents, Tom Feltz was pretty pissed off, sure. as you can imagine. Yeah. Her, his, his brothers are dead. I'd be pretty angry, too. His brothers are dead, and he is ready for revenge yeah. at this point. I think the miners were anticipating what would happen next, so they were unsure about what the consequences were going to be. And in terms of national headlines, you know, you start to see Mate One Massacre. There's even a report that says, you know, the Hatfield and McCoy feud broke out again because of Sid's last <laughs> it's name. It's in that, yeah. And so, like, there's just all eyes are on West Virginia at this point, and the miners, you know, there were 22 people that were tried mm-hmm. in, in court, and all of them would be acquitted. They were tried in Williamson, which is the county seat of Mingo County, mm-hmm. still is. They had a tough time finding a jury yeah. at this time because, you know, there's not... It's it, not one of those... It, it seems like it's one of those situations of, we're going to acquit you. We know you're guilty, but we're not going to take the chance that we find you guilty and then something happens to us. Well, I think... You know, part of it is you couldn't find anybody that hadn't been impacted by the Cold Wars at this point because a lot of lives were disrupted, and there's actually this – I wish I would have written down the quote. There's a quote from a guy in Gilbert who was a local farmer, I think, Mm -hmm. at the time, and he said, you know, in court testimony, I will sit here in this courtroom until the leaves fall off and they turn green again before I ever – you know, commit a boy from Mingo County. Yeah. You know, so the Baldwin Feltz detectives didn't have many people on their side, and for good reason. Yeah. And this was this was really a long time coming. I mean, 
Well, unfortunately, I think this brings us to the next episode, which is the assassination at Welch. And spoiler alert for all those who haven't, who don't know this, is Smiling Sid Hatfield does not survive. Can you describe that assassination at Welch and yeah. what's happening there? So this was August 1st, 1921. Mm-hmm. So we are 14 months removed from the trial after Sid was found not guilty of murder. And we're, a, you know, a couple of weeks ahead of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Mm-hmm. So Sid and one of his trusted deputies, Ed Chambers, who was also a mate one boy. Uh, Sid actually wasn't from mate one. He was from eastern Kentucky, was a miner himself, and then was recruited by Cabell Testerman to uh, help protect mate one. So he's close. I mean, if anyone goes to mate one... You're you cross right on, back and forth yep, so many times between Kentucky and West Virginia, you don't know what state you're in. Yep. Just a hop, skip, and a jump away, <laughs> yeah. you know, across the Tug River, and you're you're in eastern Kentucky. Um, so Sid and Ed were brought to McDowell County on to come to trial on charges of conspiracy. The Baldwin Feltz agents claimed that Sid and Ed conspired to shoot up a tipple in the company town of Mohawk. Mm-hmm. Others have claimed that mine guards themselves shot up the tipple to frame the men because, remind you, after the battle of Mate One, Tom Feltz is pissed. Yeah. But, you know, regardless, Sid and Ed still found themselves on trial in Welch, which was the county seat of, was and is the county seat of McDowell County. So Sid and Ed were promised safe travel, and they show up to McDowell County unarmed. They are approaching the courthouse with their wives. So uh, Sally Chambers and Jesse Hatfield were right beside them, and as they climbed up the courthouse steps, several Baldwin Feltz agents shot and killed Sid and Ed in broad daylight right in front of their wives. Sally is remembered as being said, you know, don't shoot him anymore. I can't remember exactly the number of bullets that were put into yeah. their bodies, but it was it was a lot. Yeah. And one of these agents uh, was C.E. Lively, who you'll learn about if you come to the museum. He was a spy for the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Lively ran a restaurant in Mate One and reported on the activities of Sid Hatfield and the striking miners. So he was acting as like this double cover. And Lively was not discovered until he himself actually testified in the trial for the Battle of Mate One. Wow. The courtroom, as you can imagine, exploded. Yeah. Because people trusted him. He pretty sure he carried a union card, you know, so he was very deeply integrated into the organizing of the miners. So when they ascended the McDowell County Courthouse steps on August 1st, 1921, Lively plus the Baldwin Feltz detectives shot and killed both men who were unarmed. Lively himself was later tried for the incident and then acquitted. And so this was a powder keg waiting to be set off. Yeah. More than 2,000 people attended Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers' funerals in Mate One, where they lay in wake before they would eventually be laid to rest in Buzzkirk, Kentucky. So just hop in. If you come to Mate One, you can visit their grave sites today. 
one thing that the museum is working on in partnership with Coalfield Development is to refurbish, restore, recover the apartment of Sid Hatfield. So mm. they just purchased in any buildings. I say just purchased. They've had them since 2019. And we're going to work with them, plus the community of Mate One descendants, people who are listening to this and are interested in getting involved, come out to our meetings. I mean, you can check our Facebook page, and, and we're trying to figure out, like, what could this look like? So it's going to be a really unique story telling space that will come to life over the next couple of years. That's awesome. Yeah. Again, I think this brings us to the next episode <laughs> in the Mind Wars, the Battle of Blair Mountain. Yeah. How does that come about? What happens? Uh, what are some of the reactions to that as well? Yeah. So after Sid and Ed were murdered, it their murders weren't the cause of the Battle of Blair Mountain. They certainly did did not not help. help. Yeah. And so the battle, I think, was, it was definitely decades in the making. It wasn't something that happened overnight. Miners who marched were bound and determined to get rid of the mine guard system, which, you know, as we've talked about, is this privatized system denying people and their families of basic constitutional rights. By the time of the battle, most places in West Virginia were unionized, except for the southern counties that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And there was this event that happened actually 101 years ago this month where miners were jailed in Mingo County for their unionization efforts. The UMWA headquarters were ransacked. They were jailed. They were being held without due process at this time. So let's throw another constitutional right in yeah. the mix with, with no promise of a trial. And one tool that was used by state government at the time of the mine wars was martial law. It mm-hmm. was declared several times during the period of the mine wars. And so at this point, given this jailing, given the murders of Sid and Ed, they were done. They went to Charleston. They had demands of the governor. The governor refused to hear the miners. So they started to organize, and we start to see the first, you know, group of miners come together in a small town called Marmette. 1921 was a real big year for Marmette because it was the first year that they uh, were incorporated as a town, but it's also where 10,000 miners gathered and were marching on to Mingo in order to free their union brothers that had Mm -hmm. been jailed. They would not make it to Mingo County, spoiler alert. They end up clashing with Don Chafin, who is the sheriff of Logan County and his deputies and engaged in a five and a half day battle. And so Marmette to Blair, we're looking at about 50 miles. So this march occurred, you know, over days and they weren't just walking on foot. They commandeered trains. They had tent camps set up. They were very highly organized. They had, you know, code words such as, how do you come to Mingo? And miners would say, I come creeping. So that way, you know, they knew they were one of them and they weren't, you know, with the company. They weren't another C Lively or they weren't a journalist trying to yeah. figure out their movements. They also organized health care and set up, 
field offices, so many of the women had participated, some had participated in the World War I efforts, and mm-hmm. so this is when we start to see Red Cross come about. So yeah. many of them set up stations to tend to the injured or the sick during this period. Essentially, they clashed at Blair Mountain on August 25th. That was the first day of battle, and they would stay there for about five and a half days. Don Chafin and his deputies put up a really good fight and eventually called in federal troops. One thing that I think is a misconception of the mine wars, you know, people will say this is the first time that the government dropped bombs on its own citizens. The government actually didn't drop bombs. And it, it, even if they had, it wouldn't be the first it's time. It's not the first time, no. We can point back to the Tulsa Race Massacre three mm-hmm. months prior when bombs were, were actually dropped on African Americans. Uh, and it's not even the first time violence toward, from the federal government towards... It's people. Yeah. But they were on their way. Billy Mitchell, who, you know, was very going to demonstrate, you know, how bombs could quell domestic uprisings. And I think by an act of divine intervention, he was stopped. So a lot of these planes were turned around from Charleston and sent back. There was actually a plane, there was a really bad storm that happened. There was a plane that crashed in Nicholas County. That site is still there. I don't know exactly where, I've never been to it. But Don Chafin and his army did drop, you know, homemade bombs, pipe bombs yeah. on miners, which we have a replica of in the museum that folks could check out. And so ultimately, after five and a half days of battle, U.S. federal troops come on foot and miners surrender. I think that's a very important part of this story because they're, the miners didn't have any beef with the government at this time. Their beef was with the companies. The companies, mm-hmm. this, these large corporations that were showing so much aggression and oppression that the only way, you know, Frank Keeney, who is a rank and file leader of the UMWA, said the only way you can get your rights is with a high powered rifle. And so the miners at this point were backed against the wall. When Uncle Sam came in, they laid down their arms and Many of them were very patriotic, too. You know, a lot of miners, the the standard uniform was their World War One uniform, yeah. blue jean overalls, and everybody had a red bandana because they were the redneck army. Yeah. Now, I have heard the rumor that the term redneck comes from this. No. But it's it dates a little further back. It, it does date further back. It doesn't originate from the mine wars, but I think it's popular, popularized, popularized yeah. by the mine wars. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's a point of pride that West Virginians can use. You know, redneck isn't somebody that backwards or, or th- things that we think about when we hear the term redneck, but instead the redneck army was comprised of people who found common ground across racial lines, yeah. across gender lines, across religious lines, ethnic lines, even though that they were the company very intentionally tried to keep people separated, it didn't work. They found solidarity within one another. and it's, that's a, it's a very rare moment in the United States, especially in this time period, where you find that there's a connection, racial connection, um, economic connection, 
that you know poor white miners or even farmers make with African Americans and other ethnicities. And pretty much every time it happens, there's a violent clash from the people that don't want this to happen. Right. Yep. Yep. So that's that's the story of Blair Mountain. You know, obviously the the battle didn't end after Blair. A lot of miners would be tried for treason against the state of West Virginia or for murder. So they went up 100 years ago this year. Mm -hmm. They went up to Jefferson County as an effort to try to find an impartial jury. So if you know anything about West Virginia geography, you know Jefferson County is about as far as you can go (laughs) from from Logan County and Mingo County. And, you know, most of the miners were, were acquitted. And there were... A couple of folks who were not but would later be let out, you know, on bail or let out early. But that's that's the story of the mine wars. You know, after after the treason trials, it really crippled the UMWA. They yeah. spent a lot – they poured a lot of money into that trial. Yeah, and then they start infighting a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of infighting. And what we see in the period – in the 10 years after – Blair Mountain and before, you know, the New Deal and when workers earn the right to collectively organize and bargain, we see more mine fatalities than any other decade in in the history of of West Virginia. So it it had fatal consequences, you know, not just for the battle, but also for what happened after. And then in the 1930s, the UMWA would quickly – rise to power became one of the strongest unions in the United States. The UMWA is still around. The museum is proud to to partner with Air Local Chapter in Maitland, yeah. UMWA Local 1440. They've been good as gold to us and we work together on education programming, um, events for the town, uh, and oral histories, all those things uh, we love working with, with 1440. That's awesome. So that like you said, it really kind of concludes the mine wars, which sort of brings me to start asking some questions about the museum itself. What is something in the museum that you think most people wouldn't notice or just don't notice that you really enjoy? My favorite thing that most people don't notice, and I think there's a reason they don't notice, is because it's in the back, but mm. we have an archive and a research room where visitors can come and check out, you know, all of our exhibits, our manuscripts, they can do some really intense research and get up close and personal with with this history. This is something that we were able to build out when COVID was really at its height. Yeah. But, you know, if folks can't come to the museum, we have over 700 artifacts digitized online. So if you want to do some browsing online, you can go to wvminewars.org slash for your research and request to use that and we'll get you on there free of charge so I think that's like something cool that we've been working really hard on but yeah. doesn't necessarily get brought to the to the public as much as it should sure. um, such as like our public facing events and exhibits and things like that Okay. so what is your favorite exhibit of the museum then? My favorite exhibit, I love the um, Women's Resistance Mm. exhibit in the museum. It is really close to um, the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike. I think one thing that we are working to do is uplift people's stories that we're just now learning and uncovering. 
And I think it's it's important to showcase that women, even though they weren't minors, because for one, it was against the law, and two, there's superstition around women being underground. Yeah. They were not bystanders by any means. So women, um, we have some tools on display where women would break up railroad tracks, which yeah. meant you ain't hauling coal, you ain't hauling in scabs, and you won't be able to attack us because there's a lot of violence that centered around the railroads mm-hmm. during the period of the mine wars. And women would also, you know, they were the ones that were interacting at the company store. Some women would haul in weapons, like, under their dresses. And so they were very important to the effort, just as they were then. They still are now. You know, you can look at the women down in Alabama. There's a warrior met strike that's going on that's mm. been over a year, and women are very critical into keeping the strike going with the food pantry and with all the organizing that they're doing. So I'd say that's my favorite exhibit. I also like the tent replica that yeah, we have. Yeah. I think that's a really cool piece because people can actually step into this yeah. thing. You know, even though it wasn't real, you can sit in there and imagine what it would have been like to live in a canvas tent in all seasons of West Virginia, which would have been rough. I mean, we've got a rough <laughs> climate here. Especially where it's, you're at. Yeah. 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 So those are two of my favorites in the museum. Okay. What do you want the museum visitors to take away from their experience when they leave? I hope for West Virginians and for Appalachians, they take away an immense feeling of pride. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I'm very proud to be of this place and of these people. I have. Uh, ancestors that fought in the mine wars. I am the daughter, granddaughter, great-granddaughter of Union coal miners. You know, coal is not our future by any means, but I think that there's a way that we can um, pay tribute to our to our past, and particularly the people who really built the country, yeah. but also start dreaming up what our future could be. And I think the arts and museums have a big role to play in West Virginia's future. I think, you know, West Virginians are strong, we're resilient, and we take care of our people, point blank. These are qualities that I think our ancestors, our mine wars predecessors passed down to us that we can pass to the next generation. And so I hope that when people come in, you know, they're proud of the museum and they're proud to be a West Virginian. I definitely am, and I, uh, it took me a while to come around to that. You know, West Virginia gets a bad rep, I think, in the national news. Mm-hmm. But we've got to start telling our stories, and we've got to start – you know, telling the world this is who we are. Yeah. And the museum is doing that, you know, and there's a lot of powerful people behind the museum. It's a grassroots organization started, we're very young. I mean, we were built in 2015 by a ragtag group of folks who didn't have any museum experience, but they were like, we believe in this story and we want to tell it. And so we've been doing that ever since. We're eight years running now and we're going to keep going that's awesome well Kenzie this has been really great I myself like I said I've been to the museum before it's a really awesome museum they're very friendly and there's tons of stuff to look at especially the video of Smiling Sid Hatfield (laughs) so if you're ever in the area of Maine, I highly recommend it what what days are you guys open 
We are open this season Wednesday through Saturday. You can come see us 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. The Graham can catch us on those social medias, but also, you know, visit our website at wvmindwars.org. Um, we've got lots to explore online, too. If you if you can't make it to make one, even though I, it's well worth the trip. It really is. It is a fun drive out there, and I'm driving from Canova, so it is a fun backwards drive. You never know which state you're in because you cross between West Virginia and Kentucky so many times, but it is absolutely a great time. Highly recommend the museum. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much.